One of these mornings, I'm just going to get up and go right to the benediction, because I feel like we've already had everything we need today. But don't worry, I'll, I'll still preach. It'll be all right. Before we jump into the text, I want to make a couple of just housekeeping, updating comments to you. One, on this prayer week, Janine did such a great job to invite you and to share with you the way that week is going to work. Um, I want you to hear from my heart that don't just come because your church is telling you to come. Come because we really do sense that God is doing something and wants to do something new at Lake Avenue Church. And a week of prayer does a few things. One, it communicates our dependence on God. And two, and more ultimately, the lesson that I'm learning right now, and I pray that it would be true of all of us. Some of you already know this lesson. You've, you've lived more faithfully than me. Is that when God does do something new, that we won't mistake who's doing the work. That we can point back to a prayer week, and we can point back to praying in our service, and we can point back to the transformation and the way we even understand our our identity in Christ, and so when that God moves among us and the stories start emerging and continue to emerge of, of what God's doing among us in this day, that we'll have no doubt who does the work. We won't have any confusion that somehow it's about any human effort, but only the will and the power of God. And so I invite you to come to the prayer week so that you're ready, so you're ready to beseech God, to pray and to have your posture and perspective ready for when he moves. Second, uh, on Friday night and all day yesterday, the ministry council of your church had their annual retreat. Now, some of you don't even know what a ministry council is, and I encourage you to look in your Bible because you won't find that phrase. And, um, but it's really the leaders of your church, the elected leaders and the staff leaders who come together and and, and, and discern on behalf of all of us what God's doing, how he's leading in front of us. And we made some dramatic changes this year, some of that based on budget. We usually, usually in the practice of this church has been that the ministry council goes away for the weekend, um, away from Pasadena, and we've made some changes. And I just have to report back and say that God has shown up in our time together. Jenny and I had our council and spouses to our home for dinner on Friday night, and then we were here all day yesterday in our Maple Street building, and I can tell you that by 11.30, um, I think my comment was, I'm not sure what we've done yet, but we've done everything already, because it was times of prayer, spontaneous singing, basking in the stories of the transformations that are happening in people's lives and in communities within this church, and yes, in the afternoon, we looked ahead at the next year to five years and asked God to give us a sense of what he's calling us to, what he's continuing to call us to. But I left at 4.30 yesterday more energized than I've ever left one of these gatherings. And Dan Crichton, our ministry council chair, your church chair, will look forward to that first weekend in November with our new communication to you to give you some highlights, some updates of, of what's kind of starting to stir within the ministry council. We want you to be on this journey. We want to be on this journey together. So I want to give you great, great news there. The, the final thing I want to tell you is uh, Eunice Froberg found me at the door last week, and she said, I read your bio on the church website, and do you ever see your family? And, and I said sometimes, but this week I have not, um, because it was one of these, you have these weeks too, where it all just kind of happens. 
I had 25 pages I needed to write for my coursework at Trinity. We had our ministry council retreat, and I probably should have scheduled somebody else to preach this weekend because we still have sermons and things like that. And, and it's been a full week. Um, I go to school a week from today for my last class of my doctoral program at Trinity. Oh, yeah, I'll take it. I will take it today. Now, now don't be fooled. I still have to write like a 200-page paper at the end of this. But the last class. And so next weekend, Matthew John, our pastor of evangelism, of missional outreach, he'll be preaching next weekend while I'll be on a plane to Trinity um, where, where I'll do this last class. So be here next week because we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. And if you have never heard Matthew preach, you're going to want him to preach more and me less after next weekend. And I'm fully okay with that. All right, here we go. Let's jump into the text today. But before we do, I just want to tell you, uh, this this sermon and the message, um, the message for this morning is huge. It's huge to me. In many ways, this is a sermon I have felt led to preach for three years, maybe longer. We're going to be in a text today that's anything um, but mild. Its implications for you and for me in the world that we live in today are significant. As we read the story in Acts chapter 5 of our church history, one, I, I pray this. I pray that the freedom with which we gather, the ability that we had this morning, I woke up, I put on clothes, I went to Starbucks, I came to church. And as we jump into a story of our history where that was just the farthest reality from how they woke up to serve Jesus and to worship, I hope that humbles us, helps us appreciate the world we live in. But I also pray that it speaks to us about a kind of faith, a kind of devotion to Jesus that might make it a little less easy to come to church, a little less easy to be a follower of Jesus, that as we look at our history that we might find motivation and courage to navigate the world that we live in better and differently, more like, more like they did. Before we jump into the text, I want you to remember two, two parts of Acts that are important before we jump in. One, Acts chapter 1. Do you remember when, we t when this calling, you will be my witnesses? And we had a conversation. We talked about the difference of, of becoming versus doing. And the argument would be in the church that we often substitute doing something for God rather than becoming Becoming the kind of people that God has created us to be. So we don't go and do witnessing, we become a witness. It's, a, it's an identity. It's bigger than behavior. It's, it's, it's different than just doing something to fill your time. It's a becoming. And then what we have seen over and over again in the book of Acts is that when the believers, when this new church comes together, they pray and they pray often, but this word shows up at least three times that they're praying for boldness. So we have this becoming reality of becoming and not doing, and then we have this prayer that keeps talking about and asking God to give these apostles in this early church a boldness to their faith. And so in light of becoming, in light of boldness, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We will be in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17, and we're going to go through verse 33. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party 
of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So when they went back they, and reported, uh, we found the jail securely locked and with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled, wondering what this is going to lead to. And then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing at the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, hey, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the, dem, whom, from the dead, who you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I want to round out this whole story for you because last week we ended with Ananias and Sapphira. And you remember that what I suggested, there were some things in that story that were significant. One, that the story really was around dishonesty and deception, that we can learn you can't deceive the Holy Spirit, you can't deceive God, and it's really not a wise thing to be dishonest in, in the gathered community of the, of the followers of Jesus. In a spirit-filled community, we don't need lying with one another. But then I also suggested that this is the first time in the book of Acts where we see Satan show up, and that a strategy of the enemy has always been to disrupt the movement of the people of God from within. We're much more comfortable with a narrative that has God being in the movies and in really dark places out there. But when we actually read the Bible and wake up to the reality of the enemy, that the strategy is always, always starts from within. And if that Satan could just disrupt this new movement from within and, and the way they were doing life together, these expressions of the early church, if, 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 they, if, if, if he could get in there and disrupt it from within, we'll be good. And so I believe what happened with Ananias and Sapphira was God showing his power as he's always going to show his power over Satan. And then what we have the following is the apostles move from this moment where the, there's fear in the community. Ananias and Sapphira have died, and they're starting to actually be much bolder in their faith. They're, they're on Solomon's porch. This is an entryway into the temple. This was a place that people came and went. This is where the marginalized, the sick, the poor, the people who they have healed prior are hanging out outside of the temple, and they're starting to teach. And people are 
are compelled by this message of Jesus, and not only compelled by the message of Jesus, but people are experiencing healing because we have a God who heals. In fact, there, there was so, the text tells us that, that the healing and the signs and the wonders that they were praying for were so significant that people just wanted to get in Peter's shadow because if, if they could get near his shadow, then maybe they had a shot of, of receiving healing. And then we pick up the text we've just read, and this is not good to the religious authorities. They don't like all this. The movement is growing. We're, we're now over well over 10,000 people. And, and not only is this group of people, and we, this church, we have to understand, this was kind of like a, kind of a, a subversive kind of gang, a subversive kind of mob that's moving around Jerusalem. They weren't prim and proper followers of Jesus. They didn't wake up and put their outfit together. They were like a gang. And it threatened the religious authorities at the time, and this is not good. And so we find out that they get really angry, and they put them in prison, and then we have this amazing gripping story of an angel of the Lord releasing them from prison and, and not releasing them to flee and get away from the danger, releasing them from prison so they can keep doing what they were doing, which was teaching about Jesus. And so they're released from prison, they're not hiding, and they get caught again. Now they're coming in front of all the religious authorities, and this is the pressure moment. Because if you recall earlier, in Acts chapter 3, 4, I believe, they, they were told, hey, we're going to let you go, we have no grounds to, but, but you have to stop talking about Jesus. And they leave, and they don't stop talking about Jesus, and now there's real consequences. There's a very big reality happening for them that this faith, that this isn't just extracurricular, I signed up for an hour to share my faith on the street. I mean, they're in prison, they've been released from prison, and now they're standing in front of the religious authorities, and the decision in front of them isn't keep preaching or not keep preaching, it's starting to look like it's life or it's death. And we find out that they want them dead at the end of the text, and I need you to know what happens. After that, there's this person, one of the, one of the members of the full assembly who has some wisdom going, here's the deal. Uh, there's way too many of these people following them. Uh, there's high risk here, and there have been people like this who have come before. So why don't, don't, let's not kill them, because if this is of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And if it's not from God, it will, it'll dwindle out eventually. So Bring the blood pressure down. Let's not kill them. Uh, but they still had huge consequences. And what we'll find out at the end of chapter 5 is that they were flogged, which is the very same um, technique that was used on Jesus. It was a whip with a leather whip with pieces of bone and glass and, 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 and rock. And with an exposed back, they would take the whip and all those pieces and fragments would dig into the flesh and then pull out and a back would be opened. And if, you, if, if that happened at 40 lashes, you would probably die. So they held back on Jesus and they held back on the apostles in this text. Only, only did it 39 times. And with their backs exposed, real consequences of their faith, the text tells us that they left with a sense of joy and accomplishment to be counted among those who would, who would, who would have a price for their faith. And I was frustrated this morning that I parked a little farther away from picking up my iced coffee to get here. This is real stuff. 
And there are real consequences for faith. And the faith of these apostles, I want us to see two things. And there are two things in the text, and there are two things that we need in this world right now. And the first one is this. This is a story of identity. This is an illustration. This is a narrative that reinforces the promise that Jesus makes them to them in Acts chapter 1 when he says, you will become my witnesses. You will be. Part of becoming is taking on a new identity. A new way of understanding yourself in this world. If it was about doing something for God only, without a change of perspective, without a change of who the apostles believe they are, what they've been built for, if it was just behavior, if it was just filling time, if it was just kind of scheduling faithfulness and scheduling time with Jesus, if that was it, I believe they would have tapped out and said, we've done our time today. Let's, let's leave the temple courts. This is getting dangerous. But for them, it was deeper. It was, this is a story of identity. And the story it gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus when we allow our identity to be centered in Jesus, to be rooted in Jesus primarily. Kara uh, Powell, who runs the Fuller Youth Institute, who, who's just an amazing uh, theologian, practical theologian. She's actually part of our church at the Fuller Youth Institute, working with kids and students, the three questions that, that are posed all the time, the, the task of a, of a young person is to answer three questions. Who am I? It's a question of identity. Where do I fit? It's a question of belonging. What difference do I make? That's a question of purpose. And all of her work and the work of the Fuller Youth Institute and the work of youth ministry is to help our young people have really good answers to those questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? What difference do I make? And I have said over and over again to many that those are not just questions for young people. Those are questions that each one of us continue to ask no matter what age we are. Who am I? When we look at a text like Acts chapter 5, we get a glimpse of how people answer that question when you put Jesus at the center of your identity. Because when Jesus is at the center of your identity... The answer to who I am is that I am a child of God. I am a messenger of Jesus. I am called for a mission in this world to declare the promises of Jesus in this world. I exist, yes, on earth, but I have a heavenly, a, 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 a larger understanding of my identity more than what I do for a living or who I'm married to or not married to or my status or however I would put it out on a census form. The answer that the apostles give and the life that is demonstrated in Acts chapter 5 is an answer to identity that should challenge all of us. Because their identity in Jesus brought a real tension. And your and my identity in Jesus should bring some tensions. If there is no tension in your identity of following Jesus, then I'm not sure we're, we're lined up in the way the text teaches. What's the tension? Notice in this story, what we have read, that there is real cost and real consequence to following Jesus. Part of answering the question, who I am and who am I in Christ, is that we have to understand that there's a consequence and that there is a cost 
to following Jesus, to making Jesus, to having a Jesus-centered identity, to making Jesus the central reality in our life comes with a cost. For the apostles, the cost was prison. The cost was threatening of death. The cost was being flogged 39 times. Now, now I'll just declare to you as a kid who grew up an hour away in Ventura, California, and who went from Ventura to Forest Home to Lake Avenue Church, the cost of following Jesus in my life will never look like that. It hasn't. But it doesn't matter that it didn't literally make me bleed or my life being threatened. When I do the work of following Jesus and I ask the question, because of my Jesus-centered identity, what has it cost me? What is the consequence? And I can answer that question. I'm going to try to do that in a moment for you. But the, the reality is a follower of Jesus, when we make Jesus our main identity, there's a cost and there's often consequences that come with that. But here's the tension. Notice in the story, yes, there's a cost, there's a consequence. Jail, death, flogging. But this other reality that happens, that happens in where does it happen? It happens in verse 19. Yes, there's a cost, there's a consequence, but there's also this reality of freedom. And those two things live in tension. That when we make our identity centered in Jesus Christ, we live in a world where there's a cost and there's consequences, but it runs right alongside freedom. Notice the freedom in the story. Yes, the literal freedom that an angel of the Lord came, opened the doors of the prison. Yes, symbolic, but also very literal. They were free from the consequence. But notice the freedom. They're, 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 they're talking freely to the religious authorities, confident because of who Jesus is in their life, that when death is at their doorstep, when there's consequences for their faith, there's a freedom with which they are speaking and living because when we make our identity centered on Jesus, Jesus, the cost and the consequences are paired with the freedom that Jesus brings. And so it gives us this tension to live in all the time. I'm weighing the cost of speaking up right now. I'm weighing the cost of making this kind of Jesus-centered decision, but do I believe that there's a freedom that comes as well when we make Jesus the center of our identity? The freedom, the consequence, these things are intention when we attempt to make our identity centered on Jesus. Again, I have no story to illustrate that even comes close, and I wish I was more organized because what I know is this. I know that there are people in this congregation who you have fled your country of origin you have found yourself in Pasadena at Lake Avenue Church because the cost of following Jesus, the consequence of following Jesus was so significant. It was so uh, intense that you, that you left and that the freedom that God provided was to get you here and to be part of this community and to be part of this country. So as far off as my own story in a moment is going to be from the cost and consequence and the freedom of following Jesus, know that the stories are here, and that's the beautiful part about Lake Avenue Church, is that there are some of you sitting here today who have made such a Jesus-centered identity statement in your life that your life is marked by this tension of consequence and freedom, and you're here. But, but as a kid who didn't grow up in church, 
who had no idea who I was, except the best answer I had to that question at one point in my life was that I'm the chubby kid whose parents are divorced. That was the way my 12-year-old self answered that question, who am I? Where do I fit? Where do I belong? All my friends were surfers and skateboarders and had metabolism, and I didn't. (laughs) And all their parents loved each other, and they had wonderful vacations, and we were the awkward family. And then I met Jesus, and he started reordering my life. And I remember in high school, I was living this kind of interesting identity where I loved playing football. I was a great football player for that year and a half I played. All I wanted to do in life was play football and teach driver's ed and be a teacher and coach. That was, that was the story I was going for in my life. And I go to Forest Home, and I make this commitment that this year on the football team, I, I'm going to declare Jesus to everybody. I'm going to be the example on my team because I hadn't really been loud with that part of my identity at that point. And I remember it being Forest Home, and, and my friends are laying hands on me, and we're making all of our commitments for high school, and, and this is going to be the year, and the next week, Third day of practice, I get hurt. Fourth day, I'm in brain surgery. Fifth day, no more football for me. And I remember sitting in my hospital room and frustrated, crying out to God, I just made all these commitments to you. I mean, I was going to bring Jesus to, to the team this year. I was going to go all in with my faith. Like, it was going to start costing me something to follow Jesus. It wasn't just going to be something I did on, on Sunday mornings or, or Wednesday nights. I, was, I, I made a de- declaration to you, God, that I'm all in with you. My identity is all in. And, and I can't even do it now. I can't play football anymore. And I remember in that hospital room, trapped, caught in this conflict of who am I now. And my youth pastor came in. And he spoke words to me that have brought me to this point in my life where he said, I guess it's not football. I think you have all the gifts for pastoring and ministry. So next week, you're teaching Sunday school. No theological training. It's okay. Because you see this in the midst of a consequence of cost, of difficulty, where it didn't look like my identity made sense in Jesus Jesus showed up and gave a road of freedom. See, when you trust God, when you allow him and you say, my life, my full identity is firmly planted in the person of Jesus, you need to, one, be aware there is a cost, there are consequences, but what runs right alongside is freedom. I'll take that. That's fine. (laughs) When I was a high school pastor, I would ask for the phone and have a whole conversation with somebody when when they called. Okay. Identity, huge. Becoming a witness. Our identities need to be first and primarily and only grounded in the person of Jesus, a Jesus-centered identity. And we have to understand that when we make our identity centered in Jesus, there's a cost. The text can show us this, and there is freedom alongside that cost. Second observation from this text is the word allegiance. And now we're going to start to meddle. I'm trying to figure out why we've never, it's such a short verse, why this one has never showed up in Vacation Bible School or Awana or, or camp when we memorize scriptures. Why haven't we memorized the scripture that says we must obey God rather than human beings? It's pretty clear. We must obey God 
rather than human beings. At the moment of consequence for a fo these followers of Jesus, our ancestors, our brothers and our sisters, when it was on the line, when they could get a way out, when they could get out unscathed, their answer was, we must obey God rather than human beings. Because there's another tension in this text. There's a tension with identity, and there's a tension in our lives when it comes to our allegiance. And that tension is right here. It's a tension between do we obey God or do we obey man? Your identity centered in Jesus is going to force questions of allegiance all the time. And I, I know that it's really popular right now to love Romans 13 for many of us. In Romans 13, this is a text that tells us that we're to obey the earthly authorities and governments that God has placed them. I find that we love Romans 13 when we, when we disagree with an expression of faith that's happening in the public space. We go, Romans 13, you need to obey. But we really, if we're honest, we love Acts chapter 5 too. We love the idea of obeying God over man. And so there's a tension for a follower of Jesus. What do we do in life when the institutions, when the church, when the government is asking us to live a certain way that comes in contradiction to our identity in Jesus, to our faith in Jesus? How do we respond? And let me be clear, followers of Jesus, we are called to contribute to society. We make that commitment in our, our, our child dedications. We're called to participate in the government's part. We're called to respect and to honor those who are in authority. Absolutely. But let's have a full sense of understanding. Why is it that anytime there's a movie or a story about somebody who challenges the, the government or the system or the thinking, we can celebrate it on this side of history? We love Wilbur Wilberforce, don't we? We love, we didn't say to him, we don't watch that movie and go, hey, Romans 13, he really should have shut up and we should still have slavery. We don't look at the stories of, of people who went into Nazi Germany and subverted the evil empire of Hitler and say, you know what, Romans 13, why, why don't you just support your leadership? We don't, we don't, we even at this part of history look back at civil rights and go, Man, I'm glad that happened, and yet at the time, right, the ten, part of the tension, can I see this? Levi Heidelberg gave this to me about it six months ago. And if you're not familiar, this is just an excerpt from the letter from a Birmingham jail, which was a letter that Martin Luther King wrote to church leaders who were telling him Romans 13, essentially. Keep it down. And, and I look at that and I go, man, I would have never done that. See, allegiance to God is always going to have a tension with our obedience to man. And if we don't acknowledge that tension, then, then, then we've got, it's just going to be more difficult to navigate. I, I want to show you a quote from N.T. Wright around this particular five uh, this verse here about obeying God, man, when he says this, can you put it up, the quote? I gave one slide. One, there we go. Shall we compromise our allegiance to him by going along with human instruction that cut against the gospel? Or shall we remain the loyal even at the risk of civil disobedience? 
See, the question of identity is always followed by allegiance. Peter, in this story, and the apostles made a very clear answer to the question, who are we going to obey? Are we going to obey this becoming commission that Jesus has given us? Our Jesus-centered identity is calling us to a certain way. And, and I, I, I think this is the part where our world needs us to reset our allegiance. That our allegiance is to Jesus and to God and to his ways. And here's the beautiful reality of when we do that is that my allegiance to Jesus and the journey that I have been on has taken me and I've seen some things and been in some experiences where my obedience to God might look a little bit more unique than someone else's obedience to God. And if, if we're just going to have a war with one another about whose, whose obedience is right and who's wrong, instead of allowing each other's journeys of obedience to God over man, inform us so that we can have a larger obedience to God I think that's where some of the tension happens. When I was hired at Lake Avenue Church, I was in my last interview, and it was a ministry council member. I had to get the sign-off of the division chair, and we're sitting at Coco's, and the final question I was given was a question around um, my view on something in particular, a secondary issue. And, and I answered, I said, well, with that particular issue, um, yeah. Here's, here's how I would answer that. It was in complete opposite of how he had answered that question. And we had this moment where we had to work through, where I had to actually respect and understand that he came up with an answer based on his allegiance to God and the journey that he had been on that came to a very different conclusion than the, my journey with God and how I would answer the question. Secondary issue, not a primary theological issue. It's not important for the story. But there was a choice in that moment. Who was right? His life story, very similar to mine, grew up in a family without following Jesus, and because of that, there's some choices that he has made within his family that would declare that my life is centered on Jesus, and that's why we don't do this. My story, I'm following Jesus and my family, only follower of Jesus, and because of the journey I've been on with Jesus, there's some choices I have made to declare my allegiance to God, and they look like this. So we, we do this. We don't do this. Who's right? Allegiance to God is a lifelong journey. In an election year that wants to divide the entire country, in an election year that seeks to divide the followers of Jesus, I implore us to have better conversations so that when we hear somebody's position as to why they believe following God would have them believe this, and you believe this, how those two things can live in tension and relationship with one another. The cost and consequence of allegiance, I believe, is this. For the follower of Jesus, when we make Jesus our identity, a Jesus-centered identity, the cost, the consequence of when we, when we pledge full allegiance to God primarily before anything else, here's the real cost. We don't quite fit anywhere. We become what the scripture calls a peculiar, peculiar people. There's not one kind of human institution where we can fully land and fit outside of the church. Outside of the community of faith, 
everything else that's going to try to push us into something to capture our worldview or to capture our positions on all of these interesting important topics in the world, they will all fall short because in our pursuit of pledging our allegiance to God primarily, we understand that any man-made system has its limitations. So here's my platform. Here's why I don't fit anywhere. I have a very, what I believe is a biblical and traditional view of sexuality and sexual ethics. So am I a Republican? A little bit. Until I tell you that the way I read the scriptures really declare to me what we said last week, that the people of God should always prioritize the poor, reach out to the margins of this world, that the vulnerable in society matter, and that we have an obligation to go after and make priorities for them. So am I, am I, am I a Democrat? I guess kind of. I believe that in Genesis, there's a call on the people of God to care for and to steward the creation that God has given us. And so issues of environmentalism and recycling and the realities of what that's declaring in this world, I think the people of God are called to participate, care, and be involved in those kinds of efforts and works and stewardship. So am I a little bit Green Party? Maybe. I believe religious freedom is a, is a cornerstone of this country and that it matters, but when I say religious freedom, I think the religious freedom of religions that I don't agree with matters just as much as ours, and so am I now a libertarian? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm pro-life, which means I deeply believe it's a life inside of a human being, but, but guess what? I, I believe the quality of human life, as we saw in the text last week, matters, and so human flourishing matters, and I believe that lives lost in war are lives that God grieves just as much as any other life, and so there's no platform that captures all of that easily. See, I don't fit, and I honestly don't care about fitting, because I'm here to obey God and not man. Oh, I pray that would be true of the followers of Jesus because the narrative in the world that you and I live in don't allow for that. It forces a fitting and it forces a war and it forces judgment and it wrecks us from the inside. The early church had it pretty, pretty clear here. There's a cost to following Jesus. There is freedom that comes with following Jesus, and there is a tension in this life. Who are you going to obey, God or man? And I pray that that becomes more true for you and for me. So a couple of questions for you to ponder this week. Who are you? How do you answer the question of who you are? Oftentimes, we answer that question by our vocation, our education, our accomplishments, our political identity. I always said to high school students, your t-shirts that you wear tell me a whole lot about who you are. And, my, and what I want to implore all of us and why we have a prayer week coming up is that intimacy with Jesus will drive identity in Jesus. And we are intimate in this world with so many things. Some of us are more intimate with the news feed on our phone or the cable news station on our TV than we are with our scriptures and with God. And our intimacy drives identity. And if you, have an, if you don't know how to answer that question of who you are with a Jesus-centered identity answer, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you to grow in your intimacy with God because intimacy will drive identity. And, and the other question I want us to ponder is, can we as a church live in the tension 
Live in the tension that we're all, I pray, in pursuit of of having our allegiance first and primarily in God and obeying God and not man. And the tension with that, can we handle that as a congregation? One of the staff values that I have for our team, there's four of them, but one of the things we talk about is assume the best in one another. You want to work at Lake Avenue Church? You sign a piece of paper that says, I expect you, and this church expects you to assume the best in one another. I think it's the rare person who wakes up in the day and says, you know what I want to do? I want to hurt somebody today. I want to offend somebody. I want to cause pain in somebody's life. I think most of us are doing the best we can with the day we're having. But as a church, when we can assume the best in one another, practically what that means is this. Hey, I might not agree. I don't understand how you get there. I don't quite understand how your obedience to Jesus lands you here. So can you help me understand? I don't understand how your obedience with Jesus, how it lands you over here on this particular issue or platform or candidate or whatever it is. Can you help me understand how your obedience to Jesus gets you there? When we can assume the best in one another, and this assumption I'm just going to make is that we're all here for Jesus. And that we have come and be a part of this church to obey Christ and have our identity firmly grounded in Jesus. If we can assume the best in one another, I have hope. When I was uh, 16 years old, I got hired at KB Toys in the Ventura Mall. It was a great job. I, I especially liked the weekend. I was Dr. Demo. I wore an apron. I was the guy who stood in front of the toy store with flipping dogs and throwing planes that would come perfectly. I loved it. I remember I was 16, I got the job, it's 10 hours a week, and I had to sit through a 20-hour training of the corporate headquarters of KB Toys. And by the end of that 20 hours, I mean, there was a, there was a language we had. There were little acronyms I had to memorize. I was trained how to spot somebody who was maybe stealing something. I had to memorize the SKU number, because there were no scanners back then. You had to actually manually put it in for Hot Wheel because they were 99 cents, it was the most sold thing in the store, 002071. (laughs) I also knew a few candy bar numbers, but I learned those myself. (laughs) And I remember when I worked at KB Toys, there was, uh, it was more than just a job because of that training. It was like an identity. I I spent my money on stuff in a toy store that I never cared about before because I was a part of something. Um, I I, I had a language, I had an outfit, I had a way of living because of of the job that I had. And and if if KB Toy Stores over 25 years ago can take a 16-year-old kid in a a many-hour training and inform their identity, brothers and sisters, we need to wake up to the things that are trying to form our identity every day. We need better answers to who we are. You are more than how you vote. You are more than what you do for a living. You are more than the worst mistake you have ever made. You are more than the highest accomplishment you've ever had. You are more than the degree that lands behind your name. And that more is simply this. You are Jesus' child. And he wants to change everything about you. He wants you to have a better answer to who you are than the cheap answers of this world, the ones that are going to try to pin you inside something's too small. Be ready to not fit. 
Be ready to love it, but be ready to belong here. Father, we need your help. There are so many messages, so many places that are trying to inform us of who we are and what we are supposed to be. I pray, God, that Acts chapter 5, that as we look at our brothers and sisters who've gone before us, would give us courage to have a Jesus-centered identity. Yes, to count the cost, but to live in the freedom. And God, I pray that you would help each one of us in our journey to obey you be able to say what they said. We've got to obey God and not human beings. Help us know how to obey you, God, in this time, in this world, and have the discernment to know when it's you and when it's not. In Jesus' name, amen.